From high atop Fibush Media World Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fibush. We are brought to you this week by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively Labs is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And, of course, we're brought to you by the 2019 Tower Site Calendar, which is now shipping at Fibush.com. Get your orders in. They are shipping uh, literally pretty much every day now. And you can have yours in time for the holidays if you order now at Fibush.com. We begin this week with a very big TV deal that also comes with some radio implications. And that, of course, is Nexstar's more than $4 billion deal to buy Tribune's TV and one radio station. Nexstar, of course, is the second crack at this particular Apple. As you know, it was Sinclair that tried to do this deal for a little under $4 billion. Uh, and couldn't make its way through the regulatory process. A whole bunch of issues uh, with the FCC, uh, with perhaps some improper contacts within the FCC. In any event, it doomed the Sinclair bid, and these stations went back on the market. Enter Nexstar. Nexstar has been one of the really big growth stories uh, in small and medium market local TV. They've come out of nowhere in really just the past decade or so. Uh, and taken some pretty dominant positions uh, in a lot of areas. They've been putting a lot of money into local news, and I do still want to sit down. We've talked before about Jerry Walsh, who runs their local news operation out of right here in Rochester, New York. I do intend to sit down with him and get him on the podcast at some point to talk about how they do what they do. Uh, But they have uh, really built up an impressive portfolio of local stations. Uh, They have become the first company, after a whole bunch of others have tried, uh, for instance, to have stations in every market, in upstate New York. They are in most markets in Pennsylvania. They're in a bunch of markets in New England, and now they are poised with the addition of the Tribune stations to get into some very, very large markets. Tribune, of course, uh, includes WPIX in New York, uh, includes WPHL in Philadelphia, WGN in Chicago, KTLA in Los Angeles, a whole bunch of, of big properties uh, that will take Nexstar up to a level of ownership that it has never experienced before. Uh, these are not markets that they are accustomed to operating in. Their biggest market up until now has been San Francisco, where they have KRON, which came by way of uh, of Young Broadcasting, and which has been uh, sort of a, a black sheep of TV. There, it's a former NBC affiliate turned independent that's been trying to find a, an all local news path for itself uh, with mixed success over the last few years. But now Nexstar is really going to be going into it with some big market independence, and with some conflict as well. Uh, Not so much in the big markets, but in some of the medium markets. In Connecticut, for instance, uh, Nexstar, by way of having bought out the former Lynn stations, uh, ended up with WTNH, the ABC affiliate out of New Haven, and their sister station, WCTX. Tribune brings in the Fox affiliate, WTIC-TV, and the CW affiliate, WCCT. And so uh, one or the other of those is going to have to be spun. And you wonder who is going to want either of those. Uh, Is that a play, for instance, uh, with Hearst, which has a whole bunch of other big ABC affiliates to come in and say, hey, let's take WTNH and make this part of a dominant New England group? Uh, Is it uh, an area where Sinclair says, hey, we couldn't get everything, but we might want to come in and get this? Uh, In Scranton-Wilkes-Barre, this is another one with a big chunk of conflict. Uh, because Tribune has the dominant ABC affiliate there, WNEP, and Nexstar has uh, the station it started out with, the CBS affiliate, WYOU, uh, which is paired up with the NBC, WBRE. So something is going to have to give there. This one won't be Sinclair. They're already in that market. Uh, Same deal down the road in Harrisburg, where Sinclair actually already had to spin something off. That was the ABC affiliate, WHTM, which went to Nexstar, Tribune, meanwhile, has the uh, fairly potent Fox affiliate there, WPMT. So we're going to be following all of that and see how that all plays out and what Nexstar does with its big acquisition. And then, of course, uh, you have the Cox stations that are still on the block uh, in Pittsburgh and in Boston and in several other markets uh, that still also don't have a buyer yet. So a lot shaking in the TV landscape over uh, over the next few months. We'll be following that closely. And then, of course, in radio... Tribune only has one radio station, but it's a biggie, WGN, in Chicago. A lot of speculation about whether that could end up going to one of the other cluster owners there, uh, whether it could be iHeart, whether it could be Cumulus, which already has WLS there, uh, whether it could be Hubbard, which doesn't have any big AMs there, but has a bunch of big ones like WTOP in Washington. 
No real speculation on this end about who will end up with WGN. However, I can tell you if you want to see some pictures of WGN Studios through the year, uh, neat little coincidence as it happened, uh, already scheduled on our cycle for Tower Site of the Week, which comes to you every Friday, uh, free of charge on fibush.com. Uh, we were already planning to feature WGN's brand new studios that they just moved into this year for WGN Radio, plus a historic look back at some of their previous facilities. So uh, you get a chance to look at where WGN is now coming up on Friday on FiBush.com. And then, of course, every Monday it's Northeast Radio Watch with all the news of the industry as well. Moving on with our featured interview this week. Uh, we've been telling you for a while that we wanted to get in touch with one of our favorite, most respected engineers down south, Charlie Wooten of iHeartMedia in Panama City, Florida. Charlie has been uh, really one of the nation's most prominent engineers, very active uh, in, in broadcast engineering circles, always there to share some of his expertise from his long career in broadcasting. And so we were paying very close attention almost two months ago when Hurricane Michael roared right over his own cluster of stations uh, in an area that doesn't normally get a lot of hurricane hits there in, in Panama City, Florida. And uh, Charlie had been, frankly, too busy getting everything back on the air to have a chat with us. But uh, we finally managed to catch him for a few minutes on the phone as he was... Uh, parked by the side of the highway where he could get some cell reception near his AM site, which was destroyed in the hurricane. You can see some pictures of that site. That's WDIZ 590. That's up on the webpage uh, for the podcast at com. But Charlie was generous enough to spend about half an hour chatting with us about uh, what he experienced and what he's learned and his advice for stations that want to make sure that they are ready to go the next time something as huge as Hurricane Michael or even a little smaller hits their area. So, Charlie, you've, you've been down there, obviously, doing radio in the southeast for a long time. How did this particular hurricane measure up to some of the other ones that you lived through down there? Well, I've been through several, and I've been part of iHeart's uh, hurricane response team for, for over 15 years, and... To me, this particular event was worse than Katrina was in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, because I was there in Biloxi the day after the hurricane, and uh, and and I was born and raised in Panama City, so it. I mean, I really believe that this was worse than Katrina was in uh, Biloxi. Of course, everybody talks about New Orleans uh, when they talk about Katrina, but that was a different kind of event with uh, levee breakage and whatnot. So it's it's not written in flooding, you know. It wasn't. Everybody, when everybody talks about uh, Katrina, they talk about uh, about the water. But you know, as far as wind damage is concerned, the, the you know Biloxi really got the brunt of Katrina, and and I really believe that Michael was worse than Katrina as far as wind damage is concerned. Obviously, you had known, you know, for at least a little while that there was something big forecast. How do you, what do you do ahead of time? Obviously, you've you've been making preparations for something like this for years, but kind of guide me through the the, the days leading up to this. How do you, how do you get ready? Well, we have a we have a hurricane plan, and uh, every year we update that plan uh, based on. Uh, the number of people we have working at, the, at, at our stations uh, in our in our uh, group here in Panama City, and so it that that changes from year to year when we have more or less employees, you know, based on on the way things are. But uh, we've had uh, this, you know a basic plan in place since uh, actually since I came to work for back then it was Clear Channel or actually it was Paxson in. Uh, 1997. We've always had a hurricane plan, and uh, we've and and the Panama City has had so many near misses, you know, that people here. That's one of the problems with this with this event is that the public was just tired of having the near misses and not believing what the forecasters were saying. And then to add to that, the rapid uh, intensification of this storm. Well, once it was at a Category Two, which is what everybody thought it was going to be, and then they didn't, weren't even, you know, and the general public didn't even think it was going to show up. And then it all of a sudden it's a it's a four, and of course down here we call it a four point nine. Uh, that's what that's what everybody calls it here because it was, you know, right on the edge of a five as far as the wind speed is concerned. But we we had a plan, and uh, in, individuals had particular tasks that they were they were. Uh, required to, to complete 
of course, in the engineering area, I had to make sure my generators were all topped off with fuel and and checked under load, not just ran, but checked under load. And I did that on Sunday before the storm hit on Wednesday. I went to each of my transmitter sites and to my and to the studio, and we um, we ran the generators under load. I, I simulated a power failure and. And we actually, you know, make sure that the generators, a lot of times people don't, they run their generators, but they don't run them under load. And that's very important. And uh, we did that. And uh, all of my, luckily, all of my transmitter sites have generators and the studio has a generator and they're all adequately sized so that we can, number one, run full power. And, uh, and at the studio, we can run all the air conditioning, all the lighting. It's not just the, the, the rack room and the control room that runs on generators, the complete building. And that, that's important here because we had many employees and their families in our in our studio building uh, during the, the peak of the storm. They, they, when they came to our, to our facility and we had water, we had food, um, we had electricity, we had air conditioning, which nobody else had. We even, we even had internet. I mean, I mean that was that, I mean then that was a, at a premium. We had to limit limit the use of the bandwidth uh, of that, but uh, all of those things were pre-planned and and uh, so that we we were able to not only serve the public but also have a place for our our staff to bring their families in a safe place because our studio was 35 feet above sea, above sea level, so we didn't have to worry about the storm surge. And that's something I know a lot of people don't think about in, in disaster recovery planning is what do you do, you know, everybody's got a life and they've got homes and they've got families. So how many people all told did you have in the building there? I would say uh, 30 to 35 people and a couple of dogs and a couple of cats. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, set up, uh, we set up an area on the what we call the sales side of the building, and that's where the family members had to stay. We didn't want them over on the programming side of the building uh, because we were very busy there uh, uh, sending out information to the public. We were in a simulcast mode. Uh, all five of the radio stations were in simulcast, and uh, we operated out of uh, the WPAP control room for that. And uh, that way uh, everybody was, uh, you know, we were, we had that set up so that uh, push of a button, everything went simulcast. And uh, we did that. We went into that mode uh, early, early in the morning before the storm hit at noon. Give me a sense of, of where things progressed from there. You're in the studio building at this point? Yes. Yes, I'm in the studio building. And uh, everything was trucking right along fine. At about 12.30 p.m., our studio tower went down. I had a 160-foot uh, Roan SSB studio tower for STL antennas and whatnot. It went down, but luckily uh, a couple of our stations, three of our stations were fed by, by T1 as a backup, and we were, we were, we were still on the air. And uh, then we lost studio power, and we've got an automatic uh, UPS that comes on to take up the slack while the generator is cranking. But as Murphy would have it, the generator, which was tested on Sunday, would not crank on Wednesday because the battery was not working correctly. So there was a period of a couple of hours where we were dead in the water, and uh, we had to wait until it was literally. The only reason we couldn't do it earlier was because we had to wait for it to be safe enough to go outside because there was uh, all kinds of debris flying through the air at high rates of speed, you know pieces of aluminum off of buildings and rain gutters and all kinds of things and we had to wait for for it to be safe to go out and go to the generator and what we did is we uh, took a, a, a battery out of one of the station vans and put it into the generator now the generator has this huge battery weighs over 100 pounds we had to pull it out and put this little tiny battery that like you'd use in a car or a truck in there and then we had a uh, a Honda 2KW generator and a one of these roll-around battery chargers like you would use uh, in an auto shop that will give you the 200-amp start-boost you know, connection. So we put the battery in, we cranked the Honda generator, we plugged the 
the uh, the heavy duty battery charger into the gener- into the uh, Honda, clamped on the uh, cables from the charger and put it in the boost, and then we cranked the generator and boom, it came right back up, no problem, and we were back on the air. It took a little while for us to get our next gen system, uh, you know, back rebooted, file server going, and all of that. But we were back on the air and feeding information to the public. And there was a period for about an hour where uh, the uh, the people on the air had to do radio the old-timey way. They actually had to talk into the microphone and uh, and say things rather than relying on a computer for drops and liners and whatnot. They actually had to hold their own there for a while until we got, uh, got everything back up. Uh, the... In the midst of this power failure that we had, we lost the uh, uh, the Ethernet switch for the next-gen system. It decided it didn't want to come back up, and so we had to replace it. Luckily, I had one. It wasn't a, a gigabit switch, but it was a 100-megabit switch, and we put it in, and we got the next-gen system back up. About It took about a good hour to get it back up after we had power because... All of the next-gen computers have to be connect, are connected to this Ethernet switch, which connects them to the file server, and you know how that goes. And uh, right. so we, we had to we had to they had to do old-timey radio there for a good hour while we were getting all that back uh, where they could do some pre-recorded stuff and also record some things, you know, from uh, government officials and whatnot. Sure, you had a phone system though, so people were, you were able to get government officials on the phone that way. Actually, we had a, we were using, believe it or not, uh, cell phones were uh, AT and T cell phones were working. Verizon uh, they went down and went, went down hard and didn't come back for two weeks. Um, and we were able to use uh, I think AT and T and T Mobile both stayed up. And we had to when we wanted to take a, a, a call on the air, we actually had to use uh, the the cell phone in the speakerphone mode, holding it up to the microphone in the control room. But but it, it actually sounded better than it, it uh, than I described it. It actually sounded pretty good. I have I have seen that done and when you gotta do it, you gotta do it. Are you at this point are you the only thing on the air right now in the market? There was the NPR station was the local NPR station was also on the air. But other than that we were it. Yeah. So you're really you're you're the lifeline at that point. Now, you're on, you've got four FMs and the AM. At what point did you figure out that the AM towers had been lost? Uh, at that point, it was two days later, believe it or not, <laughs> when when I drove out to the site to try to figure out why it was off the air. Uh, because the, the, first, the first day, the first two days, I was concerned with, uh, with keeping a, a diesel in my generators. The AM site did not have a generator, but all my FM sites had generators, and of course, like I said, the studio. And uh, I had to deal with that for a couple of days until our fuel contractor took that took that uh, on on, and and that gave me some time to start doing some assessment of, of damage. Uh, I mean, I knew what my studio I knew my studio tower was gone, but we had connectivity with the outside world because we have AT&T fiber coming in the building, and it is 100% underground from our location to the to the local central office, to the main central office. So that was golden and never went down for one second. And that's why our T1s to our transmitter sites uh, stayed up, and we were able to be on the air. And being part of iHeart, you've got access to their satellite network, too, if you need it, right? Exactly, and we did use that. Uh, we used that as a backup. And, in fact, as we speak, uh, WFLF, which the transmitter site is in Port St. Joe, about 35 miles southeast of Panama City, that is how we're feeding uh, audio. Uh, that's our STL right now is the uh, iHeart SATL system. Uh, that's what we're using to feed it. And we're still using it as a backup audio path to all of our stations at this point in time. So we're using, uh, we're burning a lot of <laughs> a lot of bandwidth on the satellite right now. But uh, but we're we're staying on the air. And and uh, one of the problems we had here, Scott, was that the fiber optics cuts were were 
any any uh, if you had uh, anything with where it was on a pole, where it was pole mounted, uh, the poles were down. You know, they replaced over seven thousand power poles in Panama City after the storm. Uh, we had four thousand bucket trucks here, power bucket trucks. That doesn't include the telco or the cable TV uh, people, but just just to get power restored. The whole uh, distribution and transmission network for power here was gone for all intents and purposes. And uh, and of course, whenever those poles went down with the with the fiber on them, a lot of times the cable would break. Or people would run over them with the cars, and that would uh, that would uh, mess up the integrity of, of the fiber, and uh, and so you had uh, you had multiple problems, and now they're going back and they're basically replacing every bit of fiber on the poles with new fiber rather than just snapping the other one back up the old one back up on the pole. They're actually replacing the fiber, and then you had people cutting trees out of the way and cutting fiber with their chainsaws. And you even had some power crews that had to cut fiber because they were trying to get the power poles back up. Of course, the fiber can't go back up until the power poles go back up. And uh, so you had a real real problem here with with, uh, anything that was connected with fiber. But like I said, luckily we had that underground AT&T circuit which, uh, which, like I said, never went down, and that really was our lifeline to the world. And we had some IP-based phones that we had. Um, we had uh, on the third day, uh, iHeart Corporate brought in some stuff, and we were able to uh, we were able to plug these into the network, and it gave us uh, some multiple lines for our on the air, and I uh, interconnected those. It was basically a it's a Cisco rack mount box. I don't even know the the model number or anything, but it's a rack mount, one one rack unit Cisco box with uh, what we used to call, you may know what I'm talking about, an Amphenol connector on the back yep. of it, and it, and it broke out to 24 tipping rings, and uh, we had, uh, and that, that that was over, and all I did was plug that into our to our network, and they had some numbers ported, uh, some Fort Myers, Florida numbers ported to it, and uh, so we had some numbers that we could use, and I've Move some, uh, move some of my wiring around to uh, so that we could have our, you know, our regular tele sonar telephone system uh, in use using those numbers since the other numbers were dead. Because our phone system was not on the AT and T fiber; it was on pole hung fiber, and so uh, we did We did, actually didn't get our complete phone system back until a week before last. Wow! So getting back to the to the immediate aftermath. I guess let's start with it. At what point, you know, as the storm started to to move north, and and I know it caused a huge swath of destruction, you know, pretty far inland for a storm like this too, up up into Georgia. But as it started to move past yeah. you there on the coast, at what point were you able to actually begin to to get out and and start assessing what had happened and figure out how much damage you had you had you had suffered? Well, we would have been out a lot sooner, Scott. But uh, the problem was is that. Uh... There were power poles down across roads, and 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 out of our studios, you could go north, you could go south, you could go east. And I went north, couldn't go couldn't go that way. Went south, couldn't go that way. Went east, couldn't go that way, because of power poles across the roads. And uh, so it was the next day, or actually it was about the next day, uh, eight p.m. something like that. That. The National Guard came through with chainsaws and started cutting those power poles and making a one-lane path down the streets. And so I was able to get out and uh, finally make it to my transmitter sites. And um, it was a real trip trying to get to those because I had to stop and uh, pull trees. I had a strap in my truck, and I had to stop and pull pull trees out of the way to actually get into some of my sites because they were that there were there were trees across the roads, and then we had a contractor come in on the Sunday after the storm, and he cleared the roads for us with, with a, a crew we've got with some guys with chainsaws. They they went in and completely, you know, cleared the roads out for us. But there, from Wednesday till Sunday, 
if I had to go to a transmitter site, it was a real adventure. Uh-huh. And these are all running on generator, obviously, at this point as you're trying uh-huh. to do this, right? Yeah. We were on generator at some sites for three and a half weeks. Wow. Well, now, there was help that came in for a bunch of the IHAR clusters from out of the market, too, right? You had uh, you had corporate assistance? Yeah, we had uh, a number of market, engineer, market engineers who came in on shifts, two or three or four-day shifts. We had people from Mobile. We had people from Tampa, uh, Sarasota, Montgomery, uh, uh, who, who came in and helped out. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, if it, had, it hadn't been for those guys, coming in and helping me, I, I wouldn't have been able to get things done as quickly as we were able, we were able to. And uh, everybody uh, everybody kind of hit, you know, the good thing about uh, a company like iHeart is they have the resources. I will give you a little aside. Uh, there's uh, the director of engineering for, for iHeart in Miami, Mike Hagans. Mike uh, was on vacation in Colorado, and he was on his way back. He was in northern Alabama uh, visiting his dad. Mike grew up in Panama City. I knew his dad. We're both ham operators, and and uh, I, I knew his, his dad back in the 70s. I, knew, I, I remember Mike when he was a kid. But uh, So Mike said, called me and says, look, I'm, I'm coming down. I said, okay. So he comes down, and he comes in one evening, and the next morning uh, I heard brings a chopper in because we can't get to the 94.5 transmitter site. We need to make an audio patch there to get the SAT-L audio onto the uh, onto the uh, onto the air that we had. The transmitter was on. There was a nice carrier, and there was you know, and all of that, but there was no uh, no audio getting to it because that was the one site I, did, I don't have a T1 going to. It's getting. There's one being put in as we speak, though, um, and so. The, chop, the, they, the corporate brings this chopper in. It lands uh, in a field behind the radio station at the studio. Mike gets in it. We, we make up the cable. We know what we need. I said, all you need to do is go from here to here, you know. And he says, I got it. So he gets in his. Uh, he gets in the in the chopper. Takes off. Forty five minutes later, the ninety four five signal has audio, and then they bring him back to the studio, and uh, the chopper goes back to Louisiana. But uh, that that that's the nice thing about having. The resources of a large company like you know, iHeart. A lot of people badmouth badmouth iHeart and Intercom and all the other big companies. You know that they're the big 800 pound gorilla, yada yada yada. But uh, when it comes to something like this, uh, the smaller broadcasters they wouldn't know what to do. And, and that's exactly what happened here, Scott. Uh, there are four radio stations in Panama City that are still off the air because the company they own that owns it. It's a power broadcasting. It's all it's all general knowledge, public knowledge. They said, "Screw it, we're out of here. We're not signing back on," and then they're gone. They're literally gone. They didn't even they didn't even uh, try to put their radio stations back on the air. They just threw up their hands and left. They sold one of their stations to EMF. Uh, it's still off the air, but I'm sure EMF will be putting it back on the air. And then uh, I think today they uh, uh, I saw it in the trades where they had sold the other three stations to a, a, a company out of South Florida, but none of those stations are on the air right now, and uh, the public, quite frankly, has a very negative feeling toward those stations, because they, you know, the public feels that they've been abandoned Understandably by those stations. So. Understandably so. Yeah. And the other group in town, I know a lot of their, their staff ended up leaving. Right. Right after and that, they've left. I understand, yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I haven't been privy, or, or really, I don't care you know, I haven't had the time to, to deal with it, but I understand that uh, you know that uh, that those those staff members were basically told, uh, "Sorry, we'll see you, bye." You know, and uh, I think they got a little bit of severance, but not much. But I don't know the details exactly. Not a not a good picture. So, how long did you stay in full simulcast mode, and when did the station start getting back to their individual formats? I would say, and I can't remember exactly, but I would say it was at least six to seven days because there was so much information that everybody needed to have. Uh, The place was in such a, there was so much turmoil, uh, you know, as far as uh, uh, roads and food and water, uh, medical 
all of those things that people needed to have that information and there was a steady stream of that information available and we felt that we had to continue doing nothing but uh but information on a simulcast so that every possible person could uh could hear it no matter what their favorite station was and at the same time we always reminded them what frequencies we were on so and we said there's a possibility that we could you know a generator could quit or whatever so if you're listening on if you're listening on one frequency and you lose it you can go to this frequency and you can pick us up here so we always reiterated that a couple of times about an hour that if you lose us on this frequency come over to this frequency and you'll pick us up here and um, and luckily we didn't have a situation like that, uh, except one time our 99.3. I didn't have the. I didn't, it was before the fuel contractor took over, and I thought I had the ca- the calculation right on the fuel consumption on that generator, and I didn't. And we lost we lost that for about an hour. I was on the way to the site to put fuel in the generator when the generator ran out of fuel, uh, but luckily we were able to. Uh, to prime it and get it uh, going again once we had fuel in it. My company truck has a 85-gallon uh, fueling tank in it for, for, for fueling the generators. And we, we had the fuel. That wasn't an issue. We had the fuel. We just had to get it to the individual sites. It's got to be kind of an educational piece now, too, just telling people who maybe aren't necessarily accustomed to listening to radio Hey, here's where you find us. Here are the, you, I get the point about the other frequencies. They may not instinctively know those the way they once might have, right? Yeah, if, if you're if you're a country if you were a country listener and you only listen to our country station ninety two point five, you may not be aware of our news talk station, which is on ninety four point five, or our AC uh, adult contemporary station, which is on ninety eight five, or our urban station, which is on. 99.3, or a rock station, which is on 96.3. So, you know, it was you know you had to educate the public as to uh, where they could go to get the information. Of course, it was really weird. Uh, the, you, you, all you had to do was tune across the band. There were no signals except ours and the, the NPR station here in town. And uh, and so it was uh, it was an interesting situation. The, the interference level went down too. Station, yeah, I'll bet. Our stations were getting. Our stations were getting out, being heard where they never were heard before because first, Cove, first and second adjacent uh, frequencies up in Georgia and South Alabama were off the air because uh, because of uh, power loss and whatnot. So there were people listening to us as far uh, to the north as uh, Albany and Macon, Georgia, because they never could pick us up before, and then because of uh, you know interference levels. But uh, wow, with those stations being off the air, we were we were getting out gangbusters. Yeah, for you to get all the way up to Macon, that's that's quite a haul right there. Yeah, that's that's a good what two hundred two hundred some miles from where you are. Yes, over Crazy. over two hundred miles, probably yeah. two hundred and twenty miles, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Of course, we're running a hundred kW at eleven hundred fifty feet. And it's relatively flat land. In terms of the of your staff there, I know I remember seeing on Facebook as as this was all going on. I know you had. You had a family member that you were concerned about. I'm sure some of the other staff members did. How did how did everybody fare in the end? We fared pretty good in the end. Uh, yeah, my wife, I did had had no idea. She was at the house. She did not want to leave the house. We've got six cats, and she did not want to leave without the six cats, and she didn't want to bring them to the station. So, uh, so she stayed at home, and of course I was blocked in by those power poles and couldn't get out to, to check on her to see if, if everything was all right. And uh, I finally was able to do that the next day in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I had to had to go a very weird way to get to, to the house because I'd go one way and it was blocked by water. I'd go another way, blocked by a power pole, go this way and be blocked by a tree, and uh, finally found a way to get uh, get get to the house. Uh, it took me – I live about 10 minutes – from my house to the studio, and it took me about I don't know two and a half, three hours to, to finally find a way uh, to go uh, around obstacles and find another way by to go, you know, to get to the house and finally check on her. But uh, we, our, our general manager, is living in a, uh, a fifth wheel trailer pulled up in our parking lot right now because his house was completely destroyed. And uh, we've got uh, some family, some uh, staff 
who had, you know, had some damage, but their houses are livable. Our, our production manager, Jake, he, he lived on Panama City Beach, and the beach really didn't get that much uh, damage. It was, it was, Panama City Beach is west of Panama City, and Panama City and Mexico Beach, which is east of Panama City, and Port St. Joe, which is east of Panama City, is where the major part of the damage was. Right. As far as along the coast is concerned, of course, it went inland, like you said, quite a ways all the way up into Georgia. But um, the uh, uh, he, he had uh, he had water, he had electricity uh, within a day or two after the storm, and people were going out to his house to take showers. <laughs> where do things stand? I know you said your AM is still off the air, and you haven't rebuilt the towers there. Other than that, where where do you stand in recovery right now? market as a whole, and I know it's probably more of a more of a business office question, but obviously the advertisers that you've depended on for revenue have, have suffered damage, and the residents you depend on as listeners, a lot of them aren't there now to listen. How does that how does that change the, the, the way the stations do business going forward now? We actually have a lot of listeners right now uh, because of the information that we're putting out. Uh, and, it, and to this day, we're still putting out information of uh, things will happen that we're, uh, now we're in the phase where, you know, FEMA's here, or, you know, having, uh, you know, have it will, will be set up at a particular location or the SBA will be set up at a particular location to uh, take applications for, for, uh, for uh, help. And, uh, and so uh, that, that's still going an ongoing thing. Uh, our business is weird. We're, we're doing gangbusters on business right now, but it's not from the conventional advertisers. It's from lawyers. It's from insurance companies. It's from building supply companies. It's uh, from, uh, ins- uh, you know, people uh, who are there to deal with the storm and help the public through the storm. So you have, uh, you have insurance adjusters. You have insurance lawyers. You have the insurance companies. You have the public utilities, the power company. You have uh, the cable TV companies, you know, t- telling people when their service will be restored, uh, you know, and th- it's a different group of advertisers. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're doing a, a, a above average amount of, of business right now, but it's from a completely different group of advertisers. Indeed. Indeed. It's got to be keeping your salespeople extra busy then. Everybody busy. Uh, the, the salespeople are, are staying very busy, and they're they're you know dealing with a different different set of clients. Indeed. So, you know, kind of the the, the big question that I'm sure we'll be hearing panel discussions on at, at the next uh, NAB show and, and all that is what then? What are some of the lessons from this? You know, if you had to if you had to rework some of your planning in light of this, what would you be thinking about, and what do you advise? Other broadcasters, and I think especially like those stations in, in middle Georgia, that probably never expected that something could get this far inland and cause them this much damage. How do you how do you be prepared for that? 
and I don't mean just a backup transmitter, but I mean backup power, uh, backup STL, uh, perhaps a backup studio location. Uh, you know, uh, because uh, backups, you know, that's that's what that's what kept us going is we had we had backups. Uh, I had uh, I had three carriers at them. Three of my stations never went off the air. Now they may not have had audio on them at certain points because of uh, you know issues with with uh, the STL or whatever. But but um, my 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 main three 100 kW FMs uh, never lost carrier. We did, you know, like I, like I talked about previously, we had some some times where we didn't have programming on right at the height of the storm, but uh, but for the most part, backups and uh, and then checking uh, your generator under load. Of course, Murphy's law. I, I I don't know what I, I don't know what I could do to to uh, to ensure that the battery is going to be right when you check it on Sunday and it cranks and it works and then Wednesday it doesn't, I'm not sure what you can do to, to predict that failure or to mitigate that situation. I think we did as, as well as we could based on, you know, the, what we did there as far as getting that generator cranked at the studio after the storm, we would have had it on a lot quicker, but we had to wait till it was safe, safe enough to go out, side and so uh you know that's uh you know that that's one thing but but I, just backups you gotta have you know everybody says well i got backup i got a backup transmitter well that doesn't do you any good if you don't have power and it doesn't do you any good if you don't have a backup stl so that, that you know uh, you just have to have backups and uh and uh we're we're, we're lucky here that we have that capability here at at this point in time to my to my uh, to my big uh, my two biggest uh, FMs, I've got three audio possible audio uh, pass now. Uh, you know until and then once the microwave is back up, I'll I'll drop one of those because one of those is a a cellular solution using cellular data using a, a Cisco uh, appliance that uh, gives us a, a data out of an Ethernet jack and then we just use a codec. Uh, you know, to feed that, but uh, it's it's just uh, you know backups, backups, mm-hmm. backups, backups. Were there? With, did you have a plan in place if you had lost the studio to be able to to feed audio from another iHeart location somewhere else? We would do that using the SatL system, mm-hmm. and we, and we did and we did do that to give our local uh, staff a breather from time to time. They set up uh, news operations out of the Tampa studios, and uh, and simply uh, they they patched uh, they patched that in uh, through the SATL system and took over a couple of hours a day uh, to 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 give our our local staff a a chance to uh, take a breather, you know. And uh, so they were set up. They had telephones. People could call those numbers, you know, and and and, and go on the air or, or report things, and and uh, government officials could call in on those numbers and, and give out information, and uh, that was done through the, through our news operations in Tampa. We are uh, we are all thinking of you. I don't know if you had a chance to hear any of the podcasts when this was all going on, but we were uh, we were talking about it here and. And sending you a lot of good wishes because I know you were uh, you were right in the midst of it. There, you're going to get a chance to to get a vacation sometime soon. Well, the good thing is uh, that uh, this uh, Saturday morning deer season begins, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's that's going to be part of my vacation. And then my wife and I will probably do something in the spring, uh, but uh, I really just haven't had time to you know. Uh, there's always a little fire to put out when you're when you're running uh, when you're running uh, the way we're running right now. It's just uh, you have to constantly be on top of things. And uh, if it wasn't for those guys who came in and uh, helped us from the other markets, uh, I would probably have, wouldn't have a hair left on my head. 
I'd have it pulled out, you know, trying to get everything done. But uh, all those people who came in and and helped out uh, really, really made it made it happen and made um, made our stations uh, really shine in the market. And from a public relations point, our, our stations really have a, a good image in the market. They had a good image before, but now they have a, a really, really good image because. We were there when nobody else was. And my thanks to Charlie for taking some time out of what has been a very busy schedule for him uh, to talk with us about their recovery, which is still very much ongoing from Hurricane Michael. We wish him all the best. And uh, if you want to see some more photos, there are more photos on the webpage for the podcast, which you can find at com. If you're listening to us uh, from a different podcast source, go back and check out the webpage every so often. We've got links. We've got photos. Uh, and more good stuff. And plus, of course, on the webpage, you get Tower Site of the Week every Friday and Northeast Radio Watch yeah, every and, Monday. Uh, a couple of them were Ring Dang Do and One Time Love and a couple others there. And from 1966, by request also, from Gail to Harry, that was the Young Rascals and got to have some good loving. Right here at WPSC, you're listening to a 60 Saturday night with me, Ron Sevian. I got a big trivia question for you. And if you were reading Northeast Radio Watch this past Monday, you saw a little bit of information about a a neat college radio reunion, WPSC, uh, which started out as the radio station of William Patterson State College in Wayne, New Jersey. They're now William Patterson University, but the call letters never changed. They are celebrating 30 years on the FM dial, and they're doing it in a really neat way by bringing back a whole bunch of former staffers for a week-long on-air reunion with uh, each day themed towards a particular era in the station's history. Well, one of those people uh, has been a frequent guest on this podcast. It's our good friend, engineer Nick Straka from uh, NS Radio Solutions. Uh, And I caught up with him for a few minutes to talk to him about his experiences at WPSC and to plug his air shift that's coming up, too. So this is an exciting week at your old radio station, WPSC, in Wayne, New Jersey. When were you there? I was there from, I guess, May of 1995. I was still in high school to September of 1996. I was on air, production director, and of course, assistant chief engineer. So this is what the 30th anniversary now of the station going on FM, which is fairly late for a college radio station. Yeah, they they kind of squeezed this thing in. I'm I'm not sure exact the exact mechanics of it, but I do remember I lived in Butler at the time, so I remember when it signed on as uh, Laser Hits 89 PSC was the first first iteration of it, and then it changed to Hit Radio. WPSC after that. And I want to point out the logo for Laser Hits 89. Somebody must have had some connection up here in Rochester, New York, because it's a direct ripoff of the 98PXY logo. Yeah, it does look very close, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. John Kiernan is the one who ran the radio station, and, you know, we he ran it like a real station. Like, we were expected to be there. If you missed more than two shifts, you were gone. Uh, there was a red phone in in the studio that would ring. If you screwed up, you you knew about it pretty quick, and he was always listening, always. So I don't know if he had any connection up there. He was, I believe he was the PD of WNNJ prior to being at William Patterson, which was town and country at that point. Interesting. So... There's a reunion going on. This is not the first reunion that they've done, right? This is There was an alumni takeover, what, last year? Yeah, there was an alumni takeover last year, but this is a whole week-long celebration where they're, they're really going through each stage of the radio station from Carrier Current AM until all the way up to the current Brave New Radio version of the radio station. So each day of the week is is a different day, and today is Laser Hits 89, and then tomorrow is Hit Radio WPSC. And for people who catch the podcast quick enough and can jump on this, you are on the air on Thursday, right? Yeah, I'm on from 12 to 2 on Thursday, so you can hear me hacking my way through an air shift. Haven't done one of those in about 10 years. Excellent. And this has been fun. I've been listening to this, even though this is not a radio station that that I grew up with particularly. This has been fun to listen to because they're bringing back old playlists and they're playing old air checks and old jingles. Who saved all this stuff? Where did it all come from? Uh, I don't know who saved all the Laser Hits 89 stuff. A lot of the PSC stuff came from a guy named Mike Bonte, who was there with me. And I found, I went through the archives when I found out about this and pulled out cassettes and and reel-to-reels and other things that I had. And 
even a couple of dat tapes, and that's where I found stuff. Uh, this all wraps up with a with a big brunch on Saturday where everybody gets together, right? Yeah, a huge brunch on Saturday where everybody gets together. I don't know if I'll be able to make it there, but I know a lot of the people are. But it was just an incredible station. I know from my time at, at Hit Radio, the people that were there were you know myself like i think i've done okay but you've got you've got guys like john sylvester who's a vp of fox news radio you've got kevin burkhart who you see every sunday calling nfl games on fox mike barker who's on total traffic rich kaminsky doing afternoons on light fm um monk who's you know longtime producer on what what's now todd and jade but was scott and todd at the time um Diana, who was also a producer on that show. So there was a lot of things going on. So what's the current generation there like? Are our kids now, and this is a conversation I want to have more uh, with some college radio people in the next few months in the podcast, but are, are, are the kids there still as into it? Do they sense the magic? I don't know because I have not been back there in, I would say, close to at least 15 years. And it was... it's. It, it's definitely a different atmosphere now because we were tightly formatted. We were running a top 40 CHR format, maybe closer to a hot AC, depending upon what day of the week it was. But it was still pretty strictly formatted, and, you know, it was we were running Drake Clock. We were running, you know, keep the music under you at all times except when going into a break, and when going into a break, you better not talk for more than 25 seconds. So it was very tight, and it it brought out people who really wanted to do radio as opposed to nothing wrong with it, but college kids who just want to go have some fun with their friends. And there are some good kids involved. One of the interns uh, that we have at WDHA, which is one of my stations that I contract with, she's from William Patterson and she's very good and doing a production internship. So there are some, there are some kids who are, who are into it, but I don't know if it's the same level of intensity that, that we had for it. We will be listening. I will put a link up to uh, what remains of the reunion week, including your air shift tomorrow on uh, on the webpage at com for the podcast. Uh, Nick Strecka, thanks for spending a few minutes talking about WPSC with us. Of course. Thanks, Scott. Thanks to Nick for his time. And, of course, you can find a link to the whole WPSC reunion uh, on our website at com. That does it for the podcast this week. We are brought to you by the Tower Site Calendar 2019, which is now shipping from the Fibush Media Store at com. You can get the great broadcast historian's calendar, too. Only a limited supply of those, so order yours now. Don't miss out, because when those are gone, I'm not sure we can get another printing of those uh, So from John Schneider. So uh, if you want to get the broadcast historian's calendar especially, now would be a great time to order it. And we're brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. Thanks for being with us on the Top of the Tower podcast. We will be back with you again for another edition next Wednesday.